Hi, I'm uh, Will Ruger of the Charles Koch Institute, and I'm joined by Jason Sorens from St. Anselm College, and, uh, and we're here with Governor Chris Sununu to talk about freedom in the 50 states and to talk about New Hampshire's number one ranking. So we're happy to have everyone join us, and thank you, Governor, for joining us. Well, thanks for ranking us number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're excited to talk about freedom here. And in our book, we define freedom as the ability to use your life, liberty, and property as you see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others, of course. The, um, and what we do in this book, uh, Freedom in the 50 States, uh, <laughs> is we look at over 200 state and local policy variables. Uh, and these are in the areas of fiscal policy, regulatory policy, and personal freedom areas. And we look at these and we, we weight them based upon uh, the cost of the people who would enjoy them, and then we rank the states. So, Jason, why don't you tell us uh, just briefly what are the five worst states in terms of the least amount of freedom? And again, we're not talking about Burma or you know uh, you know the Congo in terms of their level of freedom, but within the American system, who are the worst states? Yeah, so we find that uh, New York, every time we've done this, all six editions, New York has been number 50, and uh, it, it, it still pulls up the rear this time. Um, Hawaii's 49, California's 48, New Jersey's 47, and Oregon is 46. Uh, so those are our, our bottom five. Okay, so what are the best ones? Uh, we've already kind of like let the cat out of the bag Sorry. here, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but what are the states that are right behind New Hampshire, starting with uh, number five? Uh, so, okay, so number five is South Dakota, um, a fairly free state. Tennessee's number four, Nevada's number three. Florida's number two, was number one the last time we did this study, and New Hampshire, which was number two the last time we did the study, is, is now number one. So Florida and New Hampshire have been switching off the last few editions, um, both uh, very free states. And what's interesting is that uh, every time we've, we've done this, going back over a decade, um, we've looked at the data and we've seen how freedom matters to Americans. And we find that Americans are moving from less free to freer states, controlling for everything else, climate and, and so on. Um, and states with more economic freedom grow faster, have faster personal income growth. So freedom does matter, uh, makes a difference to states. So before we uh, move to the governor here, could you tell us, because again, we were joking beforehand about how there's some very small weighted variables. And when you have 200 plus variables, you're going to have a lot of things. But what are some of the big ones, right, in the fiscal, regulatory, and personal freedom policies, the ones that are really having the biggest impact on people's freedom? Well, taxation is really a, a very big one. And we look at state and local taxation uh, differently and actually give states a little bit of credit um, if they have more choice of local government. Uh, so it's easier to move from one local government to another. But we have state and local taxes. Those are very big. Um, we look at business regulations, especially things like land use regulation that drives up the cost of housing. Um, that is a, a really big one uh, because of the, the research showing how important that is. Um, labor regulation like minimum wage, right to work, those are important. And on the personal freedom side, we look at um, things like incarceration rates, uh, adjusting for crime rates. Um, and we look at a, a whole range, again, 230 different policies, a whole range of variables there. But, um, but those are some of the, the really big ones that, that feed into the study. Well, great. Well, thanks. Let, let, let's talk to the governor here. So, uh, Jason, I think you were going to ask the first question just about uh, you know New Hampshire topping the rankings. So why don't you go ahead? Yeah. So um, so congratulations on New Hampshire topping the rankings this time. Um, we were just talking about how you got elected in 2016, and, and the state was number two then, and now it's, it's number one. Um, so why do you think it is that um, New Hampshire is um, the, the freest state in the country? Is it 
um, the, the people of New Hampshire, uh, the culture, something about the government and institutions? What's your explanation? Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of all that. I think you can sum it up with uh, local control. Um, we have a not just a tradition, but a very long history of local control in that our town meetings matter. We have very high participation rates uh, when it comes to public service, whether it's at your town level or being uh, one of the 400 members of our legislature. And mm -hmm. when you have a one of the largest parliamentary bodies in the free world uh, with 400 members representing only 1.4 million people, by definition, even at the state level, it's the most rep one of the most representative bodies of, of, of government in the world, which means the control is really at the individual level, right? So it goes back to that concept of local control. And when you have more local control, uh, an individual citizen has much more say on how their taxes are spent or what's going on in their schools or whether that pothole is going to get filled or not. And it's that sense of um, that is, in its essence, uh, taking on that responsibility. I have a responsibility to myself, my family, my community, and my voice can be heard and actually has some weight to it. So because of that, I think there is an, an inherent sense of freedom. There's an inherent sense of this isn't in the government's hands. It isn't a one-size-fits-all government solution to come down. It really is about my, my job as governor is to open up doors of opportunity, mm -hmm. but let the individuals decide whether they want to go through those doors or not. And let the, the most powerful debates on education and all of that to really happen at that local level where right. you can get the teachers involved and the real policymakers involved and the ones that can drive better results, not from the government level, but what's mm -hmm. happening in the classroom or what's happening in your town, because those are the things that affect us every single day. A lot of, I think, for many years, many states had that uh, concept and philosophy in the 1800s and early 1900s, and a lot of states really pushed hard to get away from that. And that's, a, that's pushing away from checks and balances in many ways. That's pushing away from um, you know, where you can just simply get the best results and where I think government can be more, most efficient. Um, it's most efficient when it's a wide open door for the individual. So it's a little bit of a sense of freedom. You could go all the way back and say it's part of our, our you know, Puritan days, right? Uh, back in, <laughs> in New England and all of that. Um, and, you know, we kind of broke off from, you know, they were burning witches down in, in Massachusetts. So we kind of uh, broke off from that a little bit. Um, you know, some people think New Englanders and, and folks specifically in New Hampshire, well, they can be a little bit rude. No, we just, we're about ourselves. You know, we, we take care of our own communities and we very, feel very passionately about that. Um, and we spend a lot of time with that responsibility. And so in that is, I think, the essence of why New Hampshire is traditionally on, on top of the, the freedom charts. And the government has to respond to that. I mean, we could go pass laws with more taxes and all this sort of thing, but we have to respond to the needs of the people because they have such a voice. I respect that. Um, and that's why I think, you know, we not only do we do we maintain that level of freedom, but there is that checks and balances on the government to make sure it never you know, gets too far afield. Um, number two is pretty far afield. If we're ranked second mm -hmm. in the country, we, we take personal offense to that. So <laughs> we want to read the book, challenge ourselves, and get back to number one. And we were able to do it in the past few years, which is an honor. Okay. Yeah. So you know, people talk about the New Hampshire advantage. Yes. And yeah. it, do you think it's because the citizens of New Hampshire have kind of internalized that this is something that is helpful for them? I mean, they love freedom. Mm. You know, I've been up there a lot. We know that. Yeah. But it seems like that New Hampshire advantage is something because the other states of New England just aren't doing as well. I mean, you're a, you're a really different state than your neighbors. So it's not a regional effect. 
So tell us about like how people think about this New Hampshire advantage. I mean, business owners. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. People have to remember we have uh, thirty minutes south of us is Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, communist central. Frankly, uh, just to the uh, west of us is Vermont. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, uh, anytime he gets too close to the New Hampshire border, we have alarms that go off on our watches. Uh, we have Quebec uh, to our north, a great Canadian partners, but very socialistic to the north. Uh, and then Maine, obviously. So we are surrounded on all sides. And you go beyond that, you get to New York and Connecticut and it really New Jersey. It really starts getting um, uh, ugly in terms of, of the list and, and restrictions of freedoms. Um, so we, I think a lot of folks think, oh, well, New Hampshire is just a, you know, a semi-blue state. No, it's not. We really are a purple state, right? Because we we, we hold those values so true. Um, so I think, you know, the New Hampshire advantage is really about no sales tax, no income tax, and pretty soon no interest and dividends tax. So you should think about moving there. I got rid of that this past year. It's, it's rolling down to zero. Um, but it's not just, to, I think to your point, it's not just about having low taxes. Good, fundamental, good fundamentals around your uh, fiscal discipline is the cornerstone of opportunity for everything else. And I think because that New Hampshire advantage is built around strong fiscal discipline from a government level, it allows opportunity for individuals. And that's why we set ourselves apart. It's so easy for governments. You know, we talk about it and, and you guys get it. Uh, well, it will just be a 1% income tax today. And then it goes to 5 or 6%. Right. We never let that door crack. I, I was shocked. I honestly was shocked. Even Democrats in New Hampshire proposed an income tax. And I thought, this is the death nail. And it really was. We were the only state to flip our House and Senate from Democrat to Republican in 2020, primarily because the Democrats ignored the New Hampshire advantage. They ignored that fundamental cornerstone, that essence of freedom, which is low taxation, which ultimately leads to less government intervention into your lives. Yeah, and Milton Friedman talked about the importance of economic freedom yeah. to overall freedom. You, you can't be a place that doesn't have That's economic right. freedom and be, and be considered free. And so, but you know, the last time you joined us here at Cato, where we are today, you discussed the number one ranking in your fiscal policy report card uh, on America's governors. Um, so congratulations on that. That's that's very much related to you. And congratulations again on this metric. But what has been going on in New Hampshire since you last sure. came to Cato? I mean, what do you, what have what have you been doing personally yeah. to advance freedom? But let's remember that we have. You know, not just an executive branch, but the legislature. How has the sure. legislature been working in New Hampshire to increase freedom? Well, obviously, I mean, in the past couple of years, everything's gone a little bit haywire across the country. Everything from attitude to what you're seeing uh, nationally and, and, you know, happen here in Washington, D.C. And most importantly, I think what you're seeing in the states, and I, I maybe I'm saying this because I'm biased as a governor, but, you know, if you if we can take a pause on the and, and talk about the pandemic for a minute, mm -hmm. when you're talking about what happened with COVID in those, especially in 2020, it was the governors, both Republican and Democrat, frankly, that had to stand up and say, OK, we've been given flexibility by the former Trump administration, which was very powerful and very much appreciated by all 50 governors. The CARES Act money came out, whatever it was. But then we had flexibility to design systems that really empowered us, for our citizens. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all. Um, and that was a refreshing uh, note out of Washington, D.C. at the time, in a time when it was it was most needed. But since then, I mean, maybe it was because, you know, last time I was here, we had I had lowered some taxes and, and uh, you know, um, you know, we got this great favorable rating for um, being very fiscally responsible. Uh, I cut more taxes. That was the first thing. Right. Um, because we could. And the model has borne out. It works. Mm -hmm. We have business taxes in New Hampshire. We had an interest in dividends tax and, and uh, we had a, a few a few others. When we lowered them, people said, oh, wait, there's more economic freedom there. I might have more flexibility for my families. 
So, so businesses started to come there and grow there and make investments. And what happens? Our revenues actually went up, right? Because it's long-term sustainable. So the revenues actually go up when we cut taxes. So we did it again and again. Uh, this year, our, our revenue numbers are through the roof. They're absolutely through the roof. So the challenge for us is to say, how do we return it? We returned $100 million. You know, legislation said, okay, $100 million off the statewide property tax. Boom, done. Like, just give pe people property tax relief. Let's send them cash back. When the CARES Act money came, very proud of the fact that we didn't use all that CARES Act money, as like many other states did, just to do government stuff. We created a $400 million a Main Street Relief Fund for small businesses. Let's give them the money. Mm -hmm. And we did that in 30 days. From the day I announced it to the day the first checks went out, 30 days. And we created a program, created an application, sent, uh, I think, $350 million out the first time, another $50 million out the second. We did it for nonprofits because they're employers. We did it for self-employed, the only state to do a self-employment fund. So mm -hmm. what we've been trying to do is not just cut taxes, but continue that momentum we've built of success where we keep sending the money, if you will, because it ain't my money. It ain't the government. It's your money. <laughs> Right? And we really try to emphasize that this is your money. So you guys spend it. I want to create opportunity by sending it back to cities and towns, local businesses, whatever it is. So we're able to do that both in and outside of the pandemic, able to cut taxes. People said the interest, we had a 5% interest in dividends tax, uh, I think for 40 years. Uh, my father was a former governor, as you know, and I won't lie to you, I, uh, I made a few, few phone calls and I've been rubbing it in his face that I'm the one that actually got rid of the interest in dividends tax. That'll be rolled back to zero in the next few years. So, um, but again, the revenues keep coming. Mm -hmm. We're now one of the fastest growing states in the country, the fastest in, in New England, which we're very proud of. So my goal in that isn't just to say thank you for the awards and, and the accolades, but hopefully show a model that works to other states. Right. We are, I, I want to be a proof in the model. And I don't think necessarily, you know, Charlie, Governor Baker, I think does, a, a, frankly, I think he does a very good job in Massachusetts, given the political mm -hmm. dynamics. Phil Scott, I think, does a very good job in Vermont, given the political dynamics he right. has to deal with over there. Um, but hopefully we are a model of how to do things a little differently, not just to Republican, but maybe even some blue states as well. It works. We have the revenues coming in. You can cut taxes. Be a place people want to come to. And the most important part of that, it's sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. Those businesses are growing to be there, not just today and next year, but for 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And that's the most important thing I take home. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be governor forever. I, I Trust me, <laughs> just trying to go into a, a fourth term um, is, is hard enough. It strains on the family and all of that. But, um, but I, if I'm going to leave a legacy, I just want programs and things that we've done in a positive way to be sustainable and last. And not just because it keeps getting voted on, because it's working. It's a tangible working model that even the ultra left would have to say, well, let's not touch that. It, it works too well. That's always my goal. Yeah, the best governors aren't the ones that build temples. It's the ones that give, you know, give the most power back to people to make sure that they can have their own kind of, uh, you know, kind of live their own life well, right? That's, that's it. That's, I think, what you're trying to do. But Jason? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to follow up on that and ask, what would you say are the main policy lessons for other governors? You know, how can... How can they achieve good policy and what does that good policy look like? So uh, we talked about, I won't harp on it too much, we talked about the economic freedom yeah. and that starts with cutting taxes. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to create a system, you still need government systems, right? You, you mm -hmm. can't be, I don't, I'm not with these anti-government, you know, anarchists, they're, they're out there, let me tell you. But you still need government systems because without the government system, there's no, you can't create the metrics of accountability mm -hmm. or the standards you want to meet or the goals. Someone still has to be there to, to assess that, measure that, and challenge yourself to, hey, we tried five things, A, B, C, D, and E. Mm -hmm. A, B, and E worked. These two didn't. So let's pivot. 
So one of the goals I try to emphasize is whatever you do, be flexible. Don't create a system that you have to be stuck with for 10 years. Create something that's flexible. I'm an engineer by trade. I was a civil and environmental engineer for many years. And um, I cleaned up hazardous waste sites and all this sort of thing. But I always learned you, you never design the system perfectly the first time. Mm -hmm. So you got to create right. flexibility in there mm -hmm. so you can pivot whether I'm here or not um, and, and down the road. Um, you know, from that comes other op from that economic freedom comes other opportunities like, believe it or not, school choice. Mm -hmm. It's very much attached to, attached to economic freedom. We passed school choice in New Hampshire. So how did we do that? We said, well, let's focus on those that need choice the most, lower income families. Mm -hmm. So families up to 300% of the federal poverty level can now use the state portion of their funds, whatever state money would normally go to, to educate that child in the school. That's your money. You decide where it can go, whether it's a private school, homeschooling, tutoring, virtual learning academies online, whatever it is, right? The parent and the child knows the best path. Now, 98, 99% of kids, public schools in New Hampshire are phenomenal. They're great. I'm the first governor in 25 years to come up through the public schools in New Hampshire. And let me tell you, they are phenomenal. But for 1% or 2% of the kids, sometimes those four walls of the traditional classroom don't work. So let's not just try, keep trying to cram it in. Because um, it can be miserable for those kids. It really can. And there's so much potential bottled up in those kids that never gets um, kind of brought to the surface. So let's let them design their path. So now these families have that, that kind of money. And that, in its essence, is economic freedom. It's giving the money back to that family saying, you design your own educational pathway. We thought, um, you know, a few hundred kids might take up the program in the first year. It's something like seven times what we expected, mm -hmm. which tells you the demand was there. And it's mostly, frankly, lower income, a lot of inner city families that just that school wasn't working for their kid, for their child, for whatever reason. And it's not for me to say that why it isn't working or whatever it is. It's me to say, I appreciate you don't think it's working. So here's the dollars. Mm -hmm. Here's all the other options. You do you. You find that best path, best, best path for your child. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you think that with the, the some of the issues with schooling and the pandemic, not to mention some of the aspects uh, where we've seen the culture war come to the classroom, is this going to uh, actually increase demand? Do you think in New Hampshire? Without for, a doubt. Right? So oh yeah. What what might it look like over the next five to ten years? Well, I think it increases demand all over the country. Right. You're yeah. seeing it. I mean, you've seen some very uh, successful uh, school choice models, and all every state's a little different. Arizona, Florida, West Virginia has a really powerful model moving forward. So every state's a little different, as it should be, because mm -hmm. your city dynamics, your socioeconomic dynamics are a little different. Your um, accessibility, geographic accessibility to education is always a challenge. Um, we have some rural parts of, the, of, of New Hampshire where um, folks would love another opportunity, but maybe a charter school isn't nearby or there's not a private school within 40 miles and transportation becomes an issue. So you have to look at those dynamics as well. But without a doubt, to your point, the pandemic, I think, really opened up a couple uh, a couple things. First, uh, not to just bash on unions, but uh, I try not to be a union basher, although I'm very pro right to work. Um, the teachers union is out for the teachers union. I mean, even teachers are rebelling against the teachers union now. You're seeing that all across the country. Um, they're out for their own interests, and, and that is a failing model. It's a failing model. You saw it really play out in Virginia, right, with Glenn Youngkin, who, by the way, a huge fan of Glenn Youngkin. I think he's going to be a phenomenal um, a governor. I think he gets uh, inaugurated in, in the next couple of days. I think he's going to be great. But, you know, he won in Virginia not on some driven party platform stuff. He won because he simply said, parents matter, right? Mm -hmm. Parents matter. It's that simple. And let's let's champion that because it's a working it's a model that has always worked. So whether a combination of what you saw with schools shutting down, 
just in excessive amounts across the country. Um, you know, we made sure our schools were going to be open. And we had a lot of superintendents call and say, we're, you can't do this. You can't open up. You can't do it. And we said, no, we are opening those doors. It isn't about you. It is not about the system. It is about that child at the end of the day. And I understand during the early days of the pandemic, things had to tighten up and close to figure out what, what was really going on. How serious was this? We had no resources, no PPE or mat like none of that existed. But then it was, okay, there's a lot of kids that might have fallen through the gaps here. Um, I made sure the schools got open before the end of the year because we had, I said, we have to assess these kids because it's about them. We have to get our eyes on them and see what's happening so that, again, when they have options or we have resources, we know where to put them in September. Let's not wait till September to figure out where we are and how we're, how's it going. We've got to be way ahead of the game here. And in that sense, it really worked, and it empowered parents to say yes. We come first. My kids come first, not just the system. And for most kids, it was working fine. I mean, not remote. I mean, that worked very, didn't, didn't work very well for many people at all. But getting back in the classroom was a, a huge uh, sign of, uh, sigh of relief. But for some parents, they said, OK, let's take this opportunity and find another avenue. And we're just very, I think, in New Hampshire, very progressive on online programs, VLACs, what we call our VLACs programs, charter schools. We're, I'm very pro-charter school, very pro-other option, right? And um, homeschooling, great homeschooling program in New Hampshire. So we were able to open up those avenues. Our Commissioner of Education, I think, did a great job uh, really opening those doors, not for government, but for families yeah. and, and marketing that. And educational yeah. freedom is a, a big yeah. part of mm. freedom in the 50 states. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it, it did make national news when you decided to run for re-election as governor rather than, uh, than run for the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so you must uh, believe that there is some unfinished business, uh, even in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned sure. right to work. I mean, what, what would you yeah. see as your agenda going forward? So, you know, I really, um, it's a great question. Um, there, we've got a lot done in terms of getting things moving forward with a whole new system. But you don't just set up the system and say, yep, there you go, we're, we're good, right? right? You got to see it through. I'm a manager. I like, I, I'm a CEO, if you will. I, I like to s design these systems and see them through and know that there's going to be some kinks in the road. Um, we, I think I understand the intent of what we've tried to do with a lot of these things. We rebuilt our whole new system for um, substance use disorder, right? Mm -hmm. New Hampshire was the tip of the spear when it came to the opioid crisis. So I, it was politically challenging. But we did the right thing. We kind of broke down the old system, if you will. We rebuilt up a whole new system, bottom up, right? Kind of that local control, individual empowerment, bringing in a lot of private sector, not just dollars and resources, but assistance where the programs are driven by the private sector. Um, for the last two years, we haven't seen an increase in overdose deaths. We're the only state in the country to do that. And so we're not done. You can't just rest on that. I think there's still a lot more work to do. We still Our, our numbers are still too high for me. So I want to see that through. School choice, just getting underway. Right. Still, uh, maybe we could see some kinks in there. Maybe there's opportunity to grow it. So let's kind of see that all the way through. COVID is still very much with us. And I, I, I fear, I hope it's gone tomorrow. We all know it won't be. Um, so if it is here for the long term, potentially, I want to make sure whatever we're doing is long term sustainable, which is why I stay away from, you know, mandates and shutdowns and all of that, because then it becomes like a light switch. And boy, the insecurity you build in the system, what you're doing to the right. citizens, we're in a state of emergency today, we have a mask order today, we're shutting down a bit, stop it, stop it. You got, yeah. that is not sustainable. You got to build a long term sustainable system. So I'd love to see right to work done. I'd love to expand a couple of the programs that I think we've gotten off the ground, you know, we have paid, I, I passed a paid leave, paid family leave program in New Hampshire. But here's the fundamental difference. It's your choice. 
It is not an income mm -hmm. tax. It is not government driven. The government is not going to be the insurance company. It is pure choice. It is privatized and it brings in the private sector. Now, where they go nationally, I don't know. It's the only one of its kind in the country, and that's going to get underway. And if you want to buy, the, buy into the system, great. If you don't, that's on you too. So as in, from an individual standpoint, it, it, uh, it doesn't drive cost or drive burden on that individual. So we try to empower that. Those are the types of programs that are very new. You don't see them anywhere else in the country, frankly. So I still think there's a year or two to make sure they get underway, they get nurtured the right way, so hopefully they're sustainable. And if they don't work, that's okay too. You own that and say, boy, we tried something. It didn't work. We're going to pull back on it. I, politicians nowadays, they're, they're so hesitant to admit that they, yeah. <laughs> that they tried a bunch of things and something might not have worked. Right. What a shocker. It's okay. We do that Be very in the private sector. Right. Yeah. Private sector. <laughs> yeah. right. In the private sector, you want people to innovate, mm -hmm. try things, and fail. It's okay to fail. It's actually an amazing opportunity sometimes in the private sector to learn mm -hmm. from the failures. Government and politicians don't seem to have that mindset, and we're trying to bring that to the table. Well, and the advantage of federalism, right, is that you don't have a countrywide failure when, it, mm -hmm. when governors and legislators mm -hmm. experiment. That's it. I mean, we saw what happened. Did, did, I think Vermont tried to do a, you know, a pretty socialistic health care reform mm -hmm. that didn't work. Well, thank goodness the whole country didn't have to suffer right. from that, right? Right. So that's one of the things we like about federalism. Yeah. Uh, and people can vote with their feet. You know, Jason yeah, yeah. mentioned earlier the you know how migration patterns yeah. relate to freedom. I mean, it's shocking. Even controlling for climate, people are moving to more free states, yeah. and people are are fleeing the Illinois and and heck. How could you screw up California given the weather and the natural resources, but people want to leave places let, like let, that? Let, can we talk about California for a second? <laughs> sure. So I used to live there. I lived in San Francisco for three years. Any state, any state would kill for their tourism, mm -hmm. would kill for their ports, huge yeah, multi, right. multi, multi billion dollar uh, industry, kill for Hollywood and entertainment, their mm -hmm. agriculture, right? right. Um, it, they have it all. And boy, have they just thrown it away. I mean, all the opportunity in the world. They should be trying to get away from America because they're so rich and wealthy and attractive, you know. Um, it, but it, it's just the opposite. And it's just a, it's so sad because there's so much potential out there. And again, I don't bring that up so we can just rail on California mm -hmm. because it has so much potential. I, I rail on it because I want people to understand policy matters. Mm -hmm. Who you elect matters. And I'm not even getting into the Republican-Democrat thing. But people that really understand how to capitalize on policy and believe in the individual believe in that that what you guys are espousing that freedom that really defines the success of the state ultimately and ultimately the success of the individual less burden less worry on the individual well i like what you said about believing in people because uh, new hampshire doesn't have a seatbelt mm -hmm. law but does that mean that people all over New Hampshire are getting no. into car accidents and flying through the windshield? No, no. Why we, not? No, we have, a, we have a very good rate because, look, you talk about the importance of seatbelts. You talk about that it keeps you safer and all of that. And you talk about it's your responsibility to wear, or wear a helmet when you're riding a motorcycle. I mean, right. we don't have that law either because it's your personal responsibility. And the, the vast majority of people do. Right. Um, so, again, it's okay. you have to believe in the individual. Too often big governments... Their philosophy is, well, we don't believe in the individual. I, I've, had, I've had extremely liberal, socialistic Democrats come up and tell me right to my face that, well, low-income families don't have the education to know what's best for their children. Mm -hmm. The offense of that statement is astounding. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't get offended that much. I'm a pretty positive person. <laughs> but when I hear things like that, I think, my gosh. It's, it's not my job per se, but I think it's all of our responsibilities to find folks to take leadership positions that understand the power of the individual, the importance of it, and believe in them. That's where the best ideas come from, 
right? And and you got to open up your 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 mindset to that as opposed to just politics or or a political platform. Yeah. Well, let me talk um, or ask you a little bit about the about the pandemic because this is legitimately a, a tough issue. What do you do about sure. a, a contagious disease? Um, that spreads from person to person while still ref respecting freedom as much as you can. You know, even people who believe in freedom have a lot of disagreements about that. Um, you know, I came to here to D.C. with my wife, actually, and um, we were going to go to this restaurant that she liked, and we saw that, oh, actually, there's a, there's a vaccination mandate in restaurants here in, in D.C. I'm triple vaccinated, but I didn't think to bring my right. vaccine card. I'm just right. not used to that. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of wonder, like, it, it now that I'm confronted with it, it does seem a little invasive for government to mandate that everywhere throughout the uh, the entire city. Um, so I'm just curious. I mean, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, you know, what what sorts of policies do you see as going too far? What are the right policies for sure. addressing the pandemic? So one thing I always remind folks is you really have to separate 2020 from 2021. In that, yeah. in 2020, we didn't have a vaccine, we didn't have tools, we didn't have PPE, and that's why virtually every state went to some sort of oh, hold it, let's. Hold, let's take a pause on a lot of this. It was spreading like crazy, the elderly, the mm -hmm. outbreaks, and, and virtually every state did. And then we started really opening things up and, and doing it in a way that, again, two things, kept some guidelines on things such that the consumer and individuals felt safe and secure. Um, but, you know, in New Hampshire, when we talked about regulations around businesses, how does it pertain to COVID or anything like that, with the restaurants, we brought the restaurant people in. They basically wrote their rules and they worked with myself, my epidemiologist, and they designed it the way they wanted to design it. The, the bowling alleys designed their rules the way they wanted to design it. The salons designed the system the way they wanted to design it. And we'd tweak it here and there. But at the end of the day, because we let those individuals, those businesses have the right say, it gave everyone the confidence and everyone the comfort as we move forward. And that's why we've just been so flexible through it. Now, once the vaccine comes and the boosters or whatever you want to talk about, those are the tools where, again, as an individual, I now have the power to protect myself and my family. I have that individual power and responsibility. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we're, we're still managing the pandemic. There's still a crisis out there. It is not mm -hmm. over. But from the government's perspective, it's, we're not going, at least in New Hampshire, we're not going back to states of emergencies and, mm -hmm. and statewide mandates. If a business wants to require something, that's their right to do so. I believe that. Even if I don't agree with it, it's their right to do so. If a private hospital says we're going to mandate a vaccine for it's always been their right to do so. And I'm going to keep supporting that because that's their right. Other, there's a couple other governors that didn't agree with me on that, but not many, but a few because it's businesses do have rights. I've had people say businesses don't have rights. To, of course they do. <laughs> of course they have rights. They're private businesses. They're private entities. So I don't believe in government driven mandates. Um, they are doomed to fail as we're seeing. Right. Uh, we're fighting them in courts, obviously. But I can't tell you the number of um, not necessarily Republican or, or right leaning business owners that have called me and say, how do I get out of this ocean mandate? I'm going to lose uh, auto dealers, for example. Right. They're going to lose their staff that work in the, the, the techs that work mm -hmm. in their auto dealership are literally going to go across the street to the smaller guy, right. have no better um, uh, uh, a safety risk in terms of COVID, right. uh, and lose people that maybe have been working for that company for 20 years. Yeah. It's tearing families. It's tearing businesses apart, you know, these family businesses. Um, I just, my big thing is letting individuals and businesses decide how they're going to manage themselves. And mm -hmm. I, and you have to stay consistent in that. Right, right. As much as I don't think there should be a government mandate forcing the vaccine, mm -hmm. I also don't believe there should be a government mandate telling businesses, 
they can't have a vaccine. If that restaurant wants to ask for a vaccine card, that's their business. I don't think the government should force it. Right. Yeah. But that's exactly. their business. I might not agree with it, right. but that's their business. I mean, that seems to be the consistent freedom position. <laughs> I think right? so, You're yeah. respecting <laughs> the rights of businesses. You're respecting the rights of individuals. You know, it makes yeah. total sense to me. But uh, just uh, for people online, just remember, if you have questions, uh, hashtag free states, regardless of what platform you're on. Uh, but if you're on the web page, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and if you have questions and, um, you know, when you hopefully we'll have some people out there that jump in there and want to ask you, uh, you know, give you some. I can only high, imagine. Give you a high and tight. Uh, <laughs> well, I was saying I've done. Pedro <laughs> Martinez. <laughs> I've done 150. You know, one thing early on in the pandemic is um, it's part of the whole freedom, part of making sure folks have a voice. I, I did press conferences mm -hmm. and I would stand there until the press literally had no other questions. I've never walked out of a press conference <laughs> when someone said, wait, we have another question. And I will stand there for as long as it takes because I never want someone to say we weren't super transparent about what we're doing. You know, in a, in a crisis, transparency is the foundation of public trust. Mm -hmm. And so while you might not agree with a policy I'm giving or agree with a, a, an approach, because we were so transparent, people said, well, at least we know exactly where it's coming from and why. We might not agree here and there. Um, and overall, that built a great sense of confidence for families so they could say, yeah, they, they have some guidelines. We can go out. It's it's very open in New right. Hampshire, but we, we know they're not just ignoring it, right? Uh, they, we can go out and we're going to be, be, be part of the community. And our economic success was phenomenal. And because we invested so much of the CARES Act into money into businesses or into individuals, again, that made sure that when the economic comeback of 21 came, we were already planning for it. We weren't kind of figuring it out in 2020. We were coming out mm -hmm. like a rocket ship. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what has driven a lot of our success. Families moving in, businesses growing like crazy. The one issue we have is housing, yeah. as we do yeah. all across the county, uh, country. Yeah. Um, finding affordable housing. Um, I Be careful with the word affordable, the, the term affordable housing, workforce housing, whatever you want to call it. Look, I just want a, a teacher that works in a school to be able to Not rent an apartment. Yeah. And, and it's affordable. Uh, for the most part, but it's there's not not a lot of avail available, and it's mm -hmm. if I may, it's one of the the one. If you had to say what's the one downside of local mm -hmm. control, the one glaring negative has been housing because mm -hmm. on a permitting level they can stop anything, right. and and multifamily housing has almost become a NIMBY issue. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean they almost treat it like it's a prison or something. But <laughs> so what we're trying to do is say to businesses, not the government. I don't believe the state government should come in and put their thumb down and say you shall and you must, mm -hmm. but entice businesses as some of the largest taxpayers maybe in their town to go in and say, we have a voice. You mm -hmm. want this business to grow. We want to grow. But we can't do it without employees, and we can't right. have employees without housing. So yeah. empower them to be part of that solution, not just a government solution, but a community solution. And, and you know, if we need to incentivize that or create uh, opportunities to open those doors, better education for those planning mm -hmm. boards, whatever it takes. But housing is still one of the real issues that, that yeah. we're facing. I, I've learned subsequently most states are, are facing it. Yeah, but, that's right. So St. Yeah. Anselm is actually a leader in research on on housing policy. So I wonder, if, Jason, if you take a minute just to talk yeah. about some of the work that St. Anselm's is doing there, because I think it is relevant oh, to this sure. big issue. Sure, and yeah, we've, we've partnered with, with the governor and with the um, uh, with Taylor Caswell in, in the Department of Economic Development, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and other, other people in state government, uh, the former Office of Strategic Initiatives. And we've been, what we've been trying to do is uh, first do the research and figure out um, you know, what are the places that are actually really restricting housing and just trying mm -hmm trying to build absolutely nothing anywhere or near anything, you know? Right. <laughs> um, and, and there are some of those places uh, in New Hampshire and in other states as well. Um, and so we're, we're bringing those data so that we can then say, okay, well, how, what are the consequences of that? And we see the consequences are 
not much housing supply, very expensive housing, mm -hmm. and lots of actually um, socioeconomic segregation where right. the wealthy people live in Portsmouth and Hanover, and they, uh, the working class people that come in to serve them live 30 minutes away mm -hmm. in you know, the cheap town or the cheaper town. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a somewhat unsustainable economic model, especially the, when you look at how it interacts with schools and the fact that um, access to the better public schools is being gated by housing, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's a real barrier to social mobility. Um, so we've looked at those consequences, and then we've also looked at potential solutions. And some of that may involve creative state policy, like the Housing Appeals Board mm -hmm. that you supported. Um, you know, ways of not getting rid of local control, but actually just making it work better, um, so that most more people in the community have a say. Because what happens so often at these local hearings and at local elections is that the NIMBYs turn out, mm -hmm. they show up, the abutters, whatever, they complain. Um, but the majority of the community that supports these projects mm -hmm. is unheard. And so if we can activate That's their right. voices and make them more effective in the process, we'll get um, more secure property rights uh, for, for um, property owners so that you can actually develop housing on your property. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to have you know, beneficial economic consequences. Without so. a doubt. You know, there's a, there are a couple small towns. The one I, I use a lot is Walpole. Beautiful, mm -hmm. tiny uh, mm -hmm. town in the western part of the state. Very rural, very charming town. Um, and there was an affordable housing project done in town. And it was done so well. It looks like a beautiful old barn. And they did it with the aesthetics of the town. And they matched it in. And they used sustainable materials and all this. They made all the right investments. They put it in the right location. And it isn't like... There are some folks that just, you say, you know, workforce housing, they think Section 8 housing of, nine, of the <laughs> 1970s, right? That's not what we're talking yeah. about here. So a lot of it is education mm -hmm. about uh, the benefits economically, um, the models that really do work. And not that, not that every model works for every town, but that is one of the areas where I think the state can get involved, just to, on the education side, showing successful models, doing the tours. Come to this town. Let me show you what they did and how it can be beneficial. And then again, I do believe having the business sector come in and say, look, we're growing like crazy. We're doing it right here in New Hampshire, but we can't do it without housing. You gotta be part of that success. And usually the planning boards and, and, and everything will be a little more receptive to um, the local businesses as opposed right. to the government coming in and trying right. to put their thumb on things. So yeah. we still got a ways to go, but yeah. it's a challenge. But I, I think there's some solutions there. Yeah. So I want to zoom out here from, from the small towns like Walpole yes. or Sandwich <laughs> or Berlin, right? Walpole uh, sandwich, and uh, I don't know if I won those towns. Oh, in 2020, I did. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, let's zoom out uh, to, to kind of the bigger, broader questions. I mean, yeah. we're at the Cato Institute. This is a place that is a kind of beating hub of uh, freedom talk. So what are the challenges? I would to love to hear what you guys say around the water cooler here. <laughs> I, I want to know what they're beating, but this is great. This is great. But uh, what, are the, what do you think are the big challenges to freedom? I mean, we've talked about how we define freedom there. It's a very American tradition. I think you hold that view. What are the biggest challenges to freedom, period, in this country that we need to wrestle with? He said sitting in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe yeah. it's to solve it at the state level, but still, what are the big challenges? You know what? I, I, so I have two answers to that. One is going to be a little uh, esoteric, but... Uh, Obviously, on, on the big one, of the, I think one of the biggest challenges of freedom is that I think people have to understand that uh, who you elect matters, policy matters, and policy mm -hmm. has a direct impact on your family in a very day-to-day -day way. I'm afraid that we're not inspiring that next generation. I mean, I was just talking, I was over talking to a congressman uh, this morning about how do we get that next, I'm not saying even people that have to agree with me, but people right. that 
understand what's going on, that next generation of folks that, that do understand about individual liberty, individual responsibility, personal and economic freedom, and the models that drive to that. I'm afraid there are great people out there going, I'd love to run for office, but I'm not getting involved in that world. It's so ugly. It's so partisan. It's so negative. It's all personal. And I think as a system, as a government system, we're disenfranchising the next generation of leadership. And so we're going to keep going down this road that we're seeing today out of Washington, D.C., which is, it's scary. It, it's stuff that uh, 10 years ago we never thought would be discussed. Most Democrats 10 years ago never thought certain things would be said on the floor of the Senate and the House that are being said today, right? That just completely infringe on freedom. One system, big government solutions that scare the heck out of us. Um, the only good news is that Congress seems inability to do anything, inability, has an inability to do anything unless they try to go ultra authoritarian, like what you saw uh, very recently with this idea, well, we're going to nationalize your elections. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> uh, and and just, I, we could go on all day about what a colossally mm -hmm. bad idea that is. But in, in the mindset of, of some folks in, in Washington, a lot of them right now, um, that's that's the way to go. That authoritarian one-size-fits-all is, is a way to go because it fits their, their immediate need. It doesn't fit the American public's need, but it fits their immediate need to get other things passed and all that, that sort of stuff and really game the system. Um, they believe in a big system because now they believe they can game it to their... I think the other, if you will, existential threat to freedom... I don't want to blame social media, but I'll just say it's it's our cultural attitude right now in that mm -hmm. we have a, I have kids. I have two in high school. Mm -hmm. I have two high schools. I have a third grader. And my I get concerned that they've grown up in over the last 10 years only seeing the fight, the negative, mm -hmm. the anger, the fear. Mm -hmm. I try to stay very positive and, mm -hmm. and it, it's not on accident. It's very intentional. You need positivity. You need to believe in something. You need hope. And we have a generation now that, aside, even aside from politics, although that seems to integrate with everything, that is, uh, it's, it's all about the fight. Mm -hmm. And we need to culturally change that. Now, it's spawned because, look, I think social media can be a great thing, but it, it is a technology that we are not mature enough to handle as humans <laughs> right now, right? It was too good and too fast for us mm -hmm. to handle responsibly. And we're seeing the negative outcomes of that. And it got compounded by, by the COVID crisis when, when folks get, got even more remote and even more separated. We think we're we're being social on social media, but it's it's one of the least friendly. It's like New ever live in New York City? Walk around New York City. You're surrounded by 10 million people, and it's the loneliest place on earth. <laughs> you think you're in a community. You think you're being social. I'm out with all these people. That's exactly what social media is. You're not being social and, and connected, really connected with anybody, but you're part of a community without connection. That connection drives open ideas, positive discussion. Um, understanding that individual has a voice and it matters and it's smart and so let's empower it. When there's less connection, there's more of, a, of an adhere to a bigger government system. And so that fundamentally is in itself a threat to freedom because disconnection uh, pushes us back to, to more systems and more systems is the antithesis of believing in the individual and local control. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's great. I, I Can someone write that down? I feel yeah. like that was very profound. <laughs> <laughs> it's on tape. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, so you, you mentioned here that, uh, and, and in your public comments, you've been consistently pretty critical of uh, the way D.C. does business, you know, the, the federal government. Or doesn't do any business. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. yeah. Well, why is it, do you think, that, um, that the states have been so much more innovative lately than the federal government have been much more flexible 
And get we have to done. be. As governors, we're held yeah. to a, a standard of accountability. Mm -hmm. We're much more connected to citizens. It's so easy. Even even I'll call I'll excuse the term. You know, good Republican, uh, freedom-minded individuals come to Washington, and I don't know what it is in the air here, but it, they yeah. they get Washingtonized. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to go along and not stay connected with your citizens, hear their voice, give it value, give it appreciation, and still get caught in the the Washington discussion. Turn on C-SPAN right now. God knows what they're talking about, but it ain't anything that's affect, that's going to truly affect your lives, other than maybe this this election stuff. Um, but there's so little of it is impactful because they won't balance the budget. You have Social Security that's going to go bankrupt. You have Medicare that they don't want to touch any of it. Even Republicans don't want to touch any of it. And it was that attitude where I said, "Look, I'm, you're going to I'm going to drive you guys crazy because I demand if I'm going to put my family through the public scrutiny of being in a public life." By God, I'm going to get something done, and it's going to be something with a positive impact for my citizens. As governor, I can get in the car and I visit a business, I visit a school. Every day we're doing what's happening, and we're talking, but we're listening to. And if I hear what your questions and your fears and your concerns are, then as an elected official, I can help empathize with what's going on there. And that mm -hmm. empathetic connection is what I then can take back to Concord and say, guys, these are real issues hitting these families. School choice is real. Mm -hmm. I have low-income families, minority families that feel absolutely trapped, right? You know, let's make sure that they are first in line at the trough of the economic opportunity of, of education, of educational freedom. You drive that. And then when the model comes forward, you have accountability. You're checking on it. You're working with it. You're visiting those families. What's working? What, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love it. There's no sense of that here. I'm sorry, there just there there isn't, and that's a frustration. Someone said to me, "Yeah, I'm one of the only two governors in the country that has to get elected every two years, uh, and I'm running for now a fourth term, but I've, I've been I've been governor just about five years now." Um, and someone said, "Well, won't it be great? You don't have to get elected only once every six years." I said, "What a nightmare! Because if I don't like it after the first year, I'm trapped. These guys don't feel trapped. That shocks me, right?" So they do nothing for year after year, and they, they kind of get okay with it. So I don't mean this to be a, a complete dig and, and rag, but uh, ultimately that's that. And you see a lot of, I think, great potential leaders saying, I'm not running for the Senate. I'm a governor. I'm, I'm a local community leader. I have impact, and I can see in someone's eyes what I've done to help their family. I can see that family who did get services for their daughter who had overdosed twice, but now under this new system, and a continual, she, she's there, and there's continual supports, and, and she, she has self-worth and all of this sort of thing. Behavioral health, which is the next, which is really the real crisis of America, by the way. Folks don't want to talk, talk, talk about, talk about it or, or touch. But you have to engage in the behavioral health issues and mental health issues, especially around kids. Create ways for parents to get those supports instead of the old. I mean, we kind of. You know, we shamed people for behavioral health issues, and it was just that stigma was just at the outset. And you can engage with the family, and you talk to a mom or a dad, and you see that they're finally getting supports that they didn't get before. Not because you put more money in the system, you just open more doors. You created a more open system. It's awesome. And so, I that's a hard thing as a governor to to, to walk away from. I'm not term limited, uh, although I'm not going to do this forever. Um, and uh, a very different philosophy here. So I apologize to the uh, 535 people I just insulted over on Capitol Hill. But um, you, you got to get stuff done. And I'm a big believer if they said, we're going to take, take it on the chin politically, but we're going to actually balance the budget. What a novel concept. Right? <laughs> but they treat it like it's the third rail. I just, the, just the opposite. If they have the, the guts to stand up and balance the budget the right way in a bipartisan way, America would just have to say thank you.
making sure my kids aren't burdened with 35 trillion in debt. Or where where it's going to go to. You know, people will, even though they might they have to make certain sacrifices here and there, they will get behind uh, results. And so I get back to the question you asked earlier. I want to inspire that in that next generation of leaders. I'm not going to be doing this forever. And, so who's the next generation to step up and look at these models with an open, positive mind, not just get sucked into a Washington or social media uh, of yeah. and, and say, look, this, this matters. I mean, this, this stuff is real. These rankings are real. They matter. And this is where folks are going. These are where people are flocking to. Texas, Florida, Tennessee, New Hampshire, Idaho. These are red States, very, I'm, I'm just guessing, very high up in a lot of the economic freedom uh, 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 categories that you have listed here, and they're and that economic success for those states is less burden on an individual. Just to make sure someone wakes up and has one less thing to worry about today, right? Um, not because the government says so, but because another door of opportunity opened up, and it's one less thing. Yeah, they're, they're protecting your, the government is protecting your life and your liberty, but otherwise it's letting you kind of live your life you project, you. right? You, you do you. Right, exactly. And look, I, I'm, I'm more socially moderate, right? I'm not mm -hmm. a, a social conservative by any means because it, it ain't my business. Right. That's not why I got into this game um, on a variety of different levels. You do you. Mm -hmm. But I am guessing that you think that there's a probably a moral ecology that is helpful to, uh, Found, to be a foundation for freedom. I mean, I think about a place like New Hampshire. You talked about earlier about the kind of Puritan foundations. Mm -hmm. You know, personal responsibility, kind of Yankee thriftiness. Aren't these key parts of a successful free society too? Yankee, I'm going to name my state of the state Yankee thriftiness. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, but in government, but also in your oh, personal yeah. life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I have to balance my checkbook. Mm -hmm. my, I, have to, I have to pay my mortgage every month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't the government? It's right, just, it's right. really just that simple, right? Mm -hmm. Now, can, you know, I just go out and buy whatever I want? No, I have to make sacrifices. I can't get everything I want. Um, mm -hmm. There are folks in, in that run for office with the idea. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, there's folks that run for office with the idea that, um, uh, well, there's plenty of government money. My job is just to, you know, spend more of it and, and mm -hmm. put it into my programs as opposed to saying, look, we got to create these opportunities at an individual level, open those doors. And if it means, um, you know, when, when you go through a budget process, sometimes you'll find a, a, a position that's been allocated in the government that hasn't been filled for five years. Mm -hmm. And so you say, well, we're doing pretty well. Do we really we need, need that, that on the books? <laughs> you haven't been able to hire someone. Obviously, it's not mm -hmm. top priority. Let's get it off right. the books, right? And so, you know, going through, I, I, early on, I wiped out something like 1,500 rules and regulations mm -hmm. uh, with mm -hmm. an executive order. Um, because they were redundant. They just, they were silly, frankly. And we kind of keep that kind of started a, a good momentum in that over the past five years about making sure that we can keep bringing down rules and regulations. Someone can always justify a rule and a regulation, right? Mm -hmm. I could come up with almost any rule that fits a certain specific <laughs> sure. niche, but you have to take the time to say, but that had a negative effect in all these other areas. Mm -hmm. So let's bring it back. What's the net good here? Oh, the net good mm -hmm. is to get rid of that rule or to adjust it some way. And you have to have the, the ability to do that. But so often laws and rules are put into place for a specific instance that that elected official has found in their community. They're trying to act, be, do the right thing for their community. But if it's having a negative impact, that's where the governor comes in and says, as a whole, our state is being drawn down by this. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's clean it up. And I'd rather whiteboard something and, and build it back up, I'd rather go to the extreme the other way of right. whiteboarding it and get rid of, sure. getting rid of a few too many regulations mm -hmm. and forcing it to be rebuilt 
as opposed to just piling on and piling on. So do we have a question from uh, our audience online here? We've got a large number of questions from online. Okay. Let's start with a question from uh, Rob over in Dover. Rob specifically asks to the governor, in your opinion, what extent is the institution of the Executive Council, which is mm -hmm. admittedly a very interesting institution, if A, could you explain sure. it a little bit, um, but what role do you think it plays in supporting the New Hampshire advantage? Uh, the Executive Council is um, one of the most challenging things I have to deal with as governor, and it's awesome. <laughs> and this is why. The pure checks and balance on the power of the governor. And that is a, that is a, a win for the citizens of the state. Uh, it's a vestige. At one time, all the colonies had the Executive Council. It, ours is from 1679 or 1680. Well, mm -hmm. King George I put it in because his idea was he didn't want, at the time, called presidents of the colonies to have too much power. Mm -hmm. So they basically had to get authority not on laws, but authority on rules and, and contracts and how they spent money to go through a five-person council. I, I was a, a member of the council for a little while. And it really is a checks and balance, a checks and balance in a couple areas. New Hampshire is the only state to really have one left that mm -hmm. does anything. I think okay. Massachusetts has one that approves judges or something. But any contract above, I think, $25,000 in the state comes to an open and public meeting every other Wednesday that anyone can come to. And, and we debate, and the counselors and the commissioners and the governor debate those contracts, every single one. Mm. It's an amazing transparency in government. And it, it, it ensures a couple things. Number one, there's not, I'll use a technical term, fiscal shenanigans uh, in New Hampshire. It has to be bid out. It has to be an open process. It, you know, if there's any questions, you can ask questions, or the, the counselors can ask the commissioners any questions. Also, every nomination I make, I make from the Board of Housing, uh, the Board of Medical Supervisors, uh, to the Supreme Court Justice. All, I need three votes. Of the five counselors, I need three votes. So those are the two most important areas where they provide a check on the governor. It can be frustrating, of course. Um, sometimes they're Republican. Sometimes they lean Democrat. I've, I've had both in, in my tenure. And you still get it done. And it really ensures that you're putting the best people forward. It ensures that you're putting the best contracts, the best open process uh, for contracts forward. So, um, yeah, we, we don't agree all the time, but it really is. I wish, I, I, I tell you what, I think Washington needs an executive council. Um, just as a, it's not a political entity, but it's a check and balance on, on the individual to make sure nothing gets too out of hand. Nice. Uh, we've got an additional question from another New Hampshire resident asking, uh, Governor, you said some nice things to say about your neighbors to the south in Charlie Baker, Massachusetts. But can you give folks an update uh, about the lawsuit going on between New Hampshire and Massachusetts about uh, taxation and remote workers? Yeah, I did agree with Charlie on that one. I remember the day I called him and said, I'm going to sue you. Um, so because of workers, the, the background on this is because uh, a lot of folks live in New Hampshire. They were working in mass. They go remote during the pandemic. Now they've been in New Hampshire for months and months and sometimes the entire year. Yet they're still paying a Massachusetts income tax, mm -hmm. which makes absolutely no sense. It's a true violation of the Constitution mm -hmm. uh, in that they're using absolutely no services of that state right. um, other than basically working from a, a, working for a company there, as many people do, and they have to pay an income tax. So um, we had a lot of states join us in that because while we have no income tax at all, what we realized, you had like New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, you know, they all have income taxes, but they want their share, right? Mm -hmm. So they're kind of battling it out. We brought it to the U.S. Supreme Court. When the Biden administration came in, their solicitor general, I believe, intervened and uh, gave an opinion that the Supreme Court probably shouldn't even hear the case. And so they didn't hear the case. Mm. So um, 
we're looking, we're likely going to bring it back more with, um, not from the state's perspective, but from the individual, because individuals truly have standing. They have the ones that have really lost here. Um, and hopefully bring it back and get the Supreme Court to hear it. So right now we, we haven't made, we, we, we lost the first round, but I'm not giving up the fight. Uh, across the over 200 metrics uh, that's discussed in freedom in the 50 states, one of which uh, specifically cannabis freedom, where do you, Governor, sit on that? That wasn't necessarily discussed uh, in the Q&A, but sure. where do you stand there? So when I became governor, I first we decriminalized, right? We, mm -hmm. um, the previous governors wouldn't even decriminalize it, and I thought that was uh, outrageous. So we came in, we decriminalized cannabis we, cannabis, we expanded its ability to be used for medical use, we expanded its ability for everything from veterans and, and a lot of other... Oh, you don't need that anymore? Okay. Um, a, a lot of the other um, ability there. We still have not gone fully with a full legalization recreation. Um, I've always said now's not the time. And the question is, is now the time? Are we getting there? I blew up the whole uh, SUD treatment and recovery system and rebuilt something we call the doorway. It's working phenomenally well. Uh, again, the only state uh, in the country where drug overdoses uh, and deaths haven't gone up years in a row. So we're still not quite there. I mean, th those numbers are still too high and still too high for my liking. But the question is, can we do it responsibly? And one thing that we're trying to do is learn from other states. So virtually every other state around us has done it. Their drug problems are, are very are getting much more severe than, than ours is at this time. Um, but we're trying to learn what worked in those states and what didn't. Where did, where's the accountability there? Did this piece work? Did that piece not work? And we're back. Did this piece work? Did that piece not work? Um, and so I know there's a couple of bills moving through the legislature. I think the bills that are there, if it were to be legalized, are actually a, a, a pretty good system, you know, from a state perspective, still no taxation on it or anything like that. But I got to tell you, what we've been doing the past couple of years is really working in terms of the opioid epidemic. So we're trying to get data and, and really understand, are we going to kind of go backwards like a lot of these other states have in terms of how we deal with the drug crisis? Um, or is, is now the right time? Can we have the right system that still in, enforces a lot of the prevention methods, keeps it out of the hands of kids um, and, and all of that. Yeah, and I mean, even if it's legalized, uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean that the state is saying it's a good thing to do. Uh, I mean, no, to, right. smoking cigarettes is legal, but I, I'm not a big fan of people who do it. Again, I want them to be free to do so, but we don't have to say if you legalize, that means that the governor or the state is necessarily saying, Okay, now we're blessing it. We have I, uh, the New Hampshire runs seventy-five liquor stores, right? Um, and and we're really good at it, by the way. And we have the best liquor stores and the Some lowest cost. Big ones. Run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's an area where people say, well, how 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 free can New Hampshire be if they're running a business like running liquor stores? Um, and it's a very good point. Uh, but if you look at from an economic freedom perspective, we customer service perspective, right? I'll put it. I'll put our product against anybody's lower cost. No tax. People are coming all over the place, all across the Northeast, to buy our product in our stores because the state runs it so well. And we let it run as a business. We really mm -hmm. do. We let the commission kind of run as a business as it should at a very, I think, a very high quality. Um, I know it's still a little bit contentious, but that model works. And if it didn't, we'd, we'd make changes. But for the consumer, which is the most important thing, for the individual, it creates a ton of opportunity. Um, so, yeah. I, that's not saying that, you know, even though we have liquor stores on our highways, you should buy liquor and drink, right. you know, while you drink and drive. Obviously, that, that is something that you shouldn't do. But, um, but yeah, to your point, it doesn't necessarily endorse it. So I'm not sure where, where that will go. Um, I just think our, our system, our, our drug prevention system and treatment system is working very well. It's getting a lot of success. we got to make sure it's the right time. And that, that still remains to be seen. So we'll conclude our discussion today with a final question that seems almost a cry for help. 
uh, from a resident of one of our bottom five states. And this is to each member of our panel, obviously, including the governor. We'll start with you. Uh, outside of moving to New Hampshire, which this commenter says you've made a very compelling argument about, uh, what can people in the bottom five states do to promote freedom in their state? Run for office. And I really mean that very sincerely. The hardest thing to do about running for office is telling yourself, I'm, I'm going to do this. <laughs> but then you do it and you get in and you gauge with people. And I tell you, just looking someone in the eye and it sounds, we have the first in the nation primary for a reason. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have. We go door to door. We talk person to person. And we believe in the individual. It really gets back to this whole freedom concept. And so and the, the individual has to believe in us. Even be, before we get to policy, mm -hmm. they want to look you in the eye and mm -hmm. say, okay, I've met this guy. I've met this woman. You know, this is somebody that well, I might not agree on every point. But boy, they came. They knocked on my door. They came to my place of business. They really they want to work hard for my community. That's what we want in leadership. And they want to get stuff done. Yeah. And, and that's fundamentally uh, a working model. And it's why we have such high voter turnout, local control, and our elections run so well. In these other states, you have to believe in that model. They'll tell you it doesn't work, but I'm telling you it does. And you have to believe in those individuals and take what we're talking about here and champion those, those types of ideals because it's what everybody wants. They just haven't had many people come in California and New York. Very few people are actually offering that and showing a model that works in, in the understanding. And if that doesn't work, um, you grab my cell number and I'll, I'll find a, a place in New Hampshire. You can come back <laughs> anytime. So. so, I mean, that's a great answer. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, for, for me, I would add to uh, is uh, K through 12 education reform, because I think we need to have big structural changes to how we do certain things in our country that have long run effects. And if we have a K through 12 system that isn't meeting parents and caregivers needs, kids needs, then it's not going to be one that's going to be successful for us as a country. But it's also because I think that if you have a monopoly government system like that, where you don't have, say, backpack funding, where the money goes with the student, you're not going to get a lot of those competitive juices, but you're also going to empower teachers unions and others who want to, in many cases, force an anti-freedom agenda in the schools. Mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I sent my kids to public schools uh, for uh, most of their time until recently, and, and there are lots of reasons why we decided not to do that, but one of them is that they weren't teaching a lot of the things that I thought was fundamental for them being a good citizen, but also being a free, uh, free men, to grow up to be free men. I have two boys. Uh, and I think that when it comes to girls and boys, they need to learn some of those things. Um, and, and unfortunately, that wasn't happening. And I think to have the choice to go to a lot of different types of schools that would offer a lot of different types of curricula that will meet their needs is going to be important, but especially because I think we need to have a break on a system that seems in many cases not to be trying to transmit the wisdom of our country's past going forward. And I think that that would support the kind of freedom that we believe in. Yeah, and I would say getting involved in, in politics as a candidate or, or an activist for liberty is laudable. Um, but let's say that you th that's not you, and, and, or, or maybe you think that there's no way that's going to work where you are. Maybe the, the political scene is just that bad. Um, the other, the other way you can promote freedom is actually by entrepreneurship and growing the economy. You know, I actually see that as effectively increasing the scope of freedom. And one, one example I'll give is, um, you know, a lot of cities uh, used to have, most of them had sort of taxi cartels, right, where the government regulations prohibited competition among taxi companies. And then Uber comes in, and all of a sudden there's this route around that, and it vastly improved the quality and affordability of transportation within cities. 
And so that's just one example of how innovation can cre actually create freedom without changing any laws. Um, and so if that's something that is more your skill set, um, you can create more freedom for everyone in the world by innovating. Well, and, and I, well, one thing I just add is don't become a grassroots tyrant, right? Don't become the kind of person who says, I don't like X, therefore I'm going to lobby the governor and the government to try to restrict X and restrict sure. other people's freedoms. Be the kind of person that says, like, I want to grow freedom, uh, but I'm going to try to educate people about living a life that I think is a good one, right? So if you don't think smoking is a good idea, don't ban it, but maybe try to convince, you know, your mom or dad or your cousin or your neighbor, like, hey, you know, have you noticed, uh, seems like this is, uh, you know, kind of leading to bad things in your life, right. you know? That's the kind of thing at your church or other social function, right? But don't become the kind of person that tries to restrict freedom. And again, it doesn't mean that government doesn't have a, have a role. I'm not an anarchist. I think government has an important role to protect properties. But I think we probably all agree that one thing we don't lack for in this country right now, unfortunately, are people trying to tell other people how to live their lives beyond the kind of core functions of government. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. It, it, I mean, it hits on not to come back to COVID because everything seems to have come back to COVID. But that's the vaccine discussion we're having, right? I, I don't believe in government mandates. I don't believe in government should be mandating the vaccine. But I, I firmly also don't believe, as we never have, we shouldn't be telling a business how to run their business. I, I, Fred's yeah. Flower Shop in, uh, in, in New Hampshire, family business. Um, he's immunocompromised. He has a couple family members that have issues, and he has uh, two local people that work for him. And he said, "Look, I just want to make sure everyone gets vaccinated here. Mm -hmm. That's his. It's his business. Yeah, it's his right, right to do that. Who am I to tell him he can't do that? Right? right. And sorry, you you have to say you have to hire these people. When you open that door, understand what that means. You've now set a precedent for the next administration, Republican or Democrat, to say who who a business can hire and fire and why." Yeah. Right. We've really mm -hmm. don't let COVID don't let the uh, emergence of this this pandemic, this moment in time, if you will, um, reset all new rules, whether it's I don't like something. So I'm going to shut it, shut it down for everybody um, or I don't agree with something. So the government is going to solve it. That, that's a very mm -hmm. unrepublican, un, you know, libertarian uh, mm -hmm. philosophy. But un -American, philosophy. un American philosophy, and I was very—I called some some of my fellow Republicans in New Hampshire communists for even proposing that, frankly, because it really is a very un-American thing. I might not like the results, right? You know, we or individuals might like might not like the result if, but um, but it's their right to do that. And uh, and again, the government just has to do what we've always done: stay out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you everyone online uh, for watching, but also thank you for the governor. It was a, a great discussion. Oh, I loved hearing, hearing you say all these. Can't things. wait to see what the ratings are. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> no, no, no. no, I really, I, look, I really do appreciate it. And, and look, it's obviously an honor not just to be here with you guys. I mean, we have two of the big best minds in, in terms of economic freedom, individual freedoms, uh, kind of that lowercase l libertarian thought of individuals have to come first. It's an absolute honor to be here and, uh, and an honor to be ranked so highly. Um, um, I can't wait to go through 230 different metrics here. Uh, I don't think we were number one in every one of no. them, but overall we were number one. And, and, uh, uh, and again, you know, I'm very proud to have been the, you know, the most fiscally responsible governor and now the freest state and all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, being the, ranked the best is great but there's always more work to do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I said to you before, I said, I, I can't wait to go th through this book and see where we didn't do well. Mm -hmm. And now let's challenge ourselves to take those on too. So there's always, a, you know, accolades are nice, but at the end of the day, uh, a trophy on the shelf is just something sitting on the true shelf. Let's get to work and, and keep yeah. getting it done. So thank you guys for kind of driving that model, 
not obviously in New Hampshire, but nationally. You know, that, that national voice, it's so important. It really is. Well, thank you. Thank you.